Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Hip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates price and coverage match limited by state law. When it comes to working at Geico, our best advocates are our employees, like Maxine. But since she's so focused on growing her career, we hired an actor to read her story. At Geico, I love mentoring the new associates to help them make this a career and not just a job. And with new opportunities and job stability, Geico has been helping people grow their careers for over 75 years. The only downside, she still hasn't met the gecko. Where are you, fella? Ready to start your career, Kansas City? We're hiring claim sales and service agents. Apply online today at geico.job slash Kansas City. You're listening to the Heroes Podcast Network. Greetings, loved ones, and welcome back to another episode of Kaiju Curry House, the British bi-weekly podcast dedicated to bringing you the creme anglaise, a B-movie banter, and creature cinema discussion. Today, for episode 56, sadly we are not joined by Paul and Joe, your regular hosts, but myself, Alex, will be accompanied by the deputy editor for Our Culture Mag, Mr Chris Stewardson, who is also a film writer. How's it going, Chris? Very well, thank you. Lovely to be here. Ah, lovely to have you here. Um, well, let's start off with our horrific dad pun. We normally ask the question, what have Kaiju been up to? Which, the more we say it, it doesn't get any better, I'll be quite honest. Um, so I'll start <laughs> off with you, Chris. Uh, what have Kaiju been up to lately? Uh, well, lately uh, I'm working on two essays at the moment. Uh, one of them I've been working on since March on and off uh, in between other projects. Mm. Uh, and that's uh, a look at Mothra, Mothra versus Godzilla and Ghidorah the Three-Headed Monster as a loose trilogy of sorts. And specifically looking at the theme of trust, how it develops across each film and how the work of Shinichi Sekizawa uh, is and has been absolutely instrumental uh, in terms of the development of Godzilla's legacy. Hmm. Fantastic. So fairly heavy going work then. Yeah, it's uh, so as I said, I've been working on that since March. It's really turned into a beast of an essay. I <laughs> planned it as, uh, you know, something fairly short, but it's now over 5000 words um, because of uh, basically for each film. Um, I just found there was more and more content to look into both production in terms of production context, uh, but especially in historical context as well. And I didn't want to leave anything out because you know, it all comes together to, to create a really fascinating history of, of those films, what they mean, how they can be read, uh, and uh, the involvement of people like Shinichi Sekizawa and, of course, director Ishiro Honda. Mm. Well, it's funny that you mentioned Godzilla vs. Mothra because my co-host Joe, who would normally be with us this evening, his hot take is that Mothra is nowhere near as good as Godzilla vs. Mothra, but I um, completely disagree. So there you have it. Um, I'm making a, po- <laughs> making a point of saying that again, Joe. You are wrong. And I will give the first question from Joe uh, before we come to what I've been up to, because Joe actually had a question for you, Chris. Joe says, what is your stance on Batra being superior to Mothra as a kaiju? Discuss. <laughs> well, 
I'll you know I'll be I'll be upfront. Um, Mothra, uh, Godzilla vs. Mothra, 1992 is it's not a film that I go back to often. I'm not the biggest fan of the 90s films. I find them a bit dull uh, and a bit unimaginative. Mm. But I think I, I like the idea of Batra. I just don't think it's executed all that well, both conceptually and physically. Um, so ultimately, I've got to go back and say I disagree. I think Mothra is cooler. Well, there you have it, Joe. Schooled twice. Well, you get to ask the horrific dad pun question to me, Chris, when you're ready. Well, uh, what have you been kaiju up to? That, that, that Nailed it. That was beautiful, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I have been, um, as ever, playing films and falling asleep to them, not because I'm bored by them, but because I get to 8.30 in the evening. And that's kind of the danger zone hour for me. By 8.30, <laughs> if I haven't played a film, I'm going to fall asleep to it because I'm so tired from work. And the films that I've been playing and trying to stay awake to, I rewatched Mothra. And I have also watched The H-Man for this interview. But along with that, my daughter, she requested for me to play The Seven Voyages Sinbad because <laughs> she's heard me uh, talking that much about the interview that I recently did with uh, John Walsh from Ray and yes. Harryhausen Foundation. So that was nice because I could see my son and my daughter really, really getting into it. They were pretty sad when the dragon died at the end, spoiler alert, <laughs> uh, but they were pretty invested in that. And... My, my son then got to kind of jump around pretending that he was a pirate. So it, it was <laughs> very pleasant and wholesome. Oh, that's okay. wonderful. Yeah, no, it, it's been nice. We're, we've got lots and lots of kaiju movies in lately. And I'm, I'm blessed with the fact that my children keep asking to watch monster movies. I've also been recording little snippets of uh, my son pretending to be Gamera, which is quite uh, rewarding. <laughs> so he charges around and then kind of like, he brings his arms and legs and then he waddles and goes, so yeah it's nice it's nice um right okay so drawing on your work chris yeah my first question would have to be how did you get into essay writing um so i think part of it is i've always been a bit of a uh, loudmouth when it comes to uh, my film opinions uh, uh, and Basically, what happened regarding our culture uh, as a website is um, it was founded by uh, my friend Modestus, uh, Modestus Mancus, and he and I went to university together and uh, we, he and I lived together in our second and third years of university with uh, two of our other friends. And it was during university that he founded our culture mag, you know, registered it on company's house, you know, properly got the ball rolling. And he noticed a lot of my... Um, uh, <laughs> loudmouth opinions on movies on Facebook, Tumblr, Twitter, basically anywhere where I had an outlet. And he asked me if I wanted to write about, but basically if he wanted to write for the site. And I leapt at the opportunity. I thought it was great uh, because I already liked doing essays uh, during my A levels. I liked doing the essays for university, um, anything to talk about film. Uh, and so when I got the opportunity to do it for our culture, it kind of really snowballed and I've just started to do it more and more often I you know I used to when I started uh, I maybe did you know a maximum of like five essays per year you know because I had other stuff going on but now I'm doing you know it's it's stepped up to the point where I'm no longer just putting out way more content than that but I'm now also deputy editing the site so I'm bringing on new people and it's really exciting to find new people whose whose writing is uh, you know really cool and, in, and insightful and, and ask them hey do you want to come and write for us um, and we've got some lovely people now writing for us because of that. 
oh, that's really cool. And it's nice to get an idea of where you've come from and where you're at now, Chris. So can I just clarify, is it our culture or our culture mag? Uh, it's it, Basically, it started out as our culture mag. Uh, most of our branding now just says our culture. So uh, I kind of alternate between the two. Yeah, fair enough. So how many writers are there for our culture mag now? Oh, gosh. Um, I think overall we have about 21 people who are employed by our culture. Not all of them are writing for us regularly. Some people only post every so often. Uh, mm-hmm. But we have people like, uh, for example, our music editor, Konstantinos, who posts pretty much every day. He is an absolute asset to the website in terms mm. of uh, driving engagement for the music side of things. Uh, and he's scored us some, some really fantastic uh, interviews with a lot of uh, new and emerging artists as well. Oh, wonderful. Well, you've answered one of my next questions. I was going to say, um, what does our culture cover? Well, I'm guessing it's everything. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's pretty much um, anything that counts could be classed as a culture so we have you know we have a literature section admittedly it's a little smaller than some of our uh, other areas like film and music uh but still nonetheless it's there uh, as i said we do film which is predominantly what i contribute to uh and obviously we have the big music section which is pretty much the largest part of our culture brilliant and what was the main avenue for you into kaiju as kind of a film genre uh, well uh, it was as a child, um, I was already into uh, monster movies and creature features. Um, when I was seven years old, my uh, my mom got me for my birthday uh, the VHS of uh, Bert I. Gordon's Earth vs. the Spider, which to this day is one of my favourite films. And then I believe at around the same age, I came home one night from school and uh, my mom had bought me the VHS, uh, the forefront VHS of Son of Godzilla. Uh, because obviously I was already into creature features and particularly older creature features. And so my mom thought that she, that, that, that I would enjoy a Godzilla movie because uh, when she and my dad were living in London in a flat years and years ago, they had caught a Godzilla marathon on TV and my mom had, had enjoyed lots of the movies and she specifically remembered Son of Godzilla. So she, she bought the VHS thinking I'd enjoy it. And I remember that night as a family, we sat and watched it and it was just you know, instant, I was, I was hooked. There was just nothing that could stop me at that point from, from eating up as much uh, Godzilla media as I could, uh, as soon as I could get my hands on it. And presumably in your adult life, you've gone on to write about these films. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, uh, you know, it, it was already a pleasure to write about them for our culture, but now to have my name on official you know, Toho Blu-ray releases, it's, it's, it's really surreal. Uh, I, I'm absolute, you know, bowled over by it. It's been an absolute pleasure and a privilege to, uh, to write for Eureka on these sets. How much uh, research is involved in the writing of these essays? Uh, so it kind of depends how familiar I am with the, the film already, because part of being an obsessive uh, with these films growing up was, uh, you know, I, I read, anything I could get my hands on. So I was going into these movies already with a, uh, not a, uh, not a complete knowledge, but I would say a, a fairly decent sizable knowledge of these movies. And then it was kind of the research kind of depended on what I wanted to talk about. So before I pitched the essays to Eureka, I worked out exactly what I wanted to say. Um, 
and that involved watching the movies and kind of thinking you know what is this movie making me think about and with mothra it was you know knowing the you know kind of seeing that there were some parallels with real life events and then i went to research those real life events uh you know i find the texts and the books that were out there that um had the most pertinent information uh i'd studied study them look at the production history of the movies as well and kind of go from there oh, that's fantastic it's really interesting to hear more about this so you've talked about your essay writing for eureka and how you pitch those ideas let's start off with the h-man because i think more people will be listening to this knowing about mothra what is the h-man all about well the h-man uh, or the h-man um is uh, in Japanese, the, the the kind of the actual translation is beauty and the liquid people. Um, and it tells the story of liquid humans who have been irradiated from hydrogen bomb tests, who have come back to Japan and specifically the seedy underbelly of, of the, the J- Japan's nightclub gangster scene and are slowly, you know, in returning to that life, they are coming into contact with people, they're killing people. And that's brings the attention of the local police force and they've got their hands tied with local gangster ring and trying to find out uh, who has murdered one of their lot and the two threads come together very nicely as as we as we turn as it turns out the the person committing the murders in this crime ring is not actually one of the members but is the h-man the this kind of blob-like liquid human hmm and you compare the H- the H-Man to the American Blob. Which version is that? Uh, well, the, the, the 1958 version, it, obviously only in a very kind of artificial sense because both films have uh, a, uh, a, a gelatinous yes. uh, monster that uh, kills via touch and dissolves its victim. But other than that, it's entirely, you know, the two movies are entirely different beasts. Sure. Um, so it's a, super, um, it's a superficial comparison. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Fair enough. Um, In your writing of your essay, which is titled A Very Pleasant Way to Die, you talk about the people affected by the atomic bomb. Can you pronounce that for us, please? Uh, Yeah, so the term is hibaksha, um, which is a term that means atomic bomb affected person. And that has been used in Japan to describe the survivors of the Hiroshima and Nagasaki bombings. Mm Mm-hmm. This might sound like a silly question. What made you uh, draw on that demographic for the writing of this essay? Well, for, for, for starters, obviously, I want to make clear that the parallels I drew between the H-Men and the experience of the Habaksha uh, was not done flippantly. And, and I'm certainly not suggesting that uh, the, the, the H-Men were designed as, as stand-ins for the Habaksha because a, that's just not true, but it would have also reduced the film to you know something of a reactionary piece. Mm. Um, it was more a case of I was watching this film, and especially in the movie, they talk about how it's possible that the minds or the memories of the, or the psyche of those the, the the people who have been turned into the H man may have been retained, and that got me thinking you know and they, they even say in the movie you know uh, a, a liquid create a liquid creature created by the, the hydrogen bomb with the mind of a human and there was something about that that seemed just terribly sad and, and tragic the idea that because of radiation because of the proliferation of atomic warfare and hydrogen bomb tests you have 
this new organism created from humanity that is tied to the use of atomic weapons who have been changed to such a degree that they can never go back to humanity as normal. And when you consider the experience of the Hibakusha in Japan following World War II and the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, unfortunately, the, the very real and the very horrific othering that they experienced uh, and the cruel untruths that were stirred about them just made me think of how they had been othered. They had been pushed away from others. And, you know, I, I just noticed there was a, there was a, there was something of a parallel there. And I think obviously it, it relies on you as a viewer being able to look at the H-man, uh, the H-men, not as just monsters, but also, you know, they, they, these are people who are, used to be like us, you know, they, 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 you know, uh, you know, I'm trying to choose my words delicately here because I think it is a sensitive topic and I, I don't want to treat it flippantly. Uh, but I think there are certain parallels you can draw there when you start to view the H men as, as victims and, and not simply as, you know, mindless monsters. And I think that one thing from watching the film was that I went in knowing very little about it whatsoever. So I did kind of expect something more akin to the blob, hence me asking kind of the comparison because I expected mm. kind of a goopy monster uh, creature feature. And actually what I got was a very sincere, quite poignant film that was harrowing and rather unsettling. So it, it was a pleasant surprise, but a far heavier film experience than I'd kind of uh, planned out. So mm. thank, you, thank you for elaborating on that. Yeah, no problem. Within your essay, um, the, the title, A Very Pleasant Way to Die, where is the influence for that? Well, as part of the research for uh, the essay, I read Susan Southard's uh, very incisive text, Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War in which she documents uh, the experience of several survivors of the Nagasaki blast and individually talks about their experiences literally, you know, in the days before the blast, during the blast, in the days after the blast, and in the years after, after the bombings. And one point that she mentions in that was how in late 1945, uh, mere months after the bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, Manhattan Project Director General Leslie Groves spoke before the US Senate, and at the time he was very eager to quash interest in the effects of radiation that might otherwise challenge the morality of using the atomic bomb. Uh, and Groves testified that death from high exposure to radiation was without undue suffering, and specifically Groves said that it was a, quote, a very pleasant way to die, end quote. And as soon as I read that, I just, I mean, it, it, it's harrowing. It shatters you because, good God, to say that, mm. you know, knowing what, what the survivors of Hiroshima and Nagasaki went through, let alone the people who perished in those, uh, in those bombings, mm. is, it's monstrous. It's absolutely monstrous. And the families of the people who suffered seeing yeah. and losing their loved ones as a result so to have such a detached statement it's pretty abominable isn't it yeah it's uh it's uh it, it certainly knocks you and unsettles you mm. well i'm afraid on that very heavy note we are going to take our first break so thank you for listening <laughs> so so far folks thank you
Me, 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 but also you. <laughs> the Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film. Hip, 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 powder donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Oh, man, that's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry, I'm gonna need a few more minutes. <clears throat> bulbous Walrus, the Bulbous Walrus. The Name Your Price tool, only from Progressive. The owl ran afoul of the comatose Coxswain. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to Kaiju Curry House. My name is Alex. We are on the second part of this interview with Chris Stewardson, who is a writer, filmmaker, and the deputy editor of Our Culture Mag. Chris, you've been talking very um, seriously about the Habaksha, who are, of course, are the uh, people affected by the atomic bomb, and drawing links to the film The H-Man from 1958, directed by Ishiro Honda. Can you elaborate a bit further about the uh, Habaksha? People. Yes. Um, so this is uh, an excerpt from uh, from my essay, but I would also uh, just give a shout out again to Susan Th- Southard's uh, very good text, um, Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War, as that obviously goes into it in, in much more detail. Um, so the othering of Hibaksha occurred in a multitude of demeaning ways. Some bomb, va- some bomb survivors who had sustained intense burns all over their bodies spent months and some would spend years in hospitals unequipped, largely due to wartime shortages, to deal with the severity of their injuries. When patients were discharged after many lengthy, painful attempts at skin grafts and reconstructive surgeries, their injuries drew attention. So unbearable were the constant stares, the startled whispers, and the comments of disgust that some Hibakshire hid themselves away from the sight of others, rarely venturing outside their homes. Young children, who had been physically scarred by the bombings, many of whom having lost their parents, siblings, or both, found themselves taunted for their appearances by their classmates. And in tandem with the very real horror of increased rates of leukemia developing in adults and children closest to Nagasaki's hypercenter, that is the area directly beneath the bomb at the point of detonation, rumors spread that people could catch radiation sickness by touching a survivor. And Hibakusha faced further discrimination when applying for work as employers rejected them out of fears of their current and future ill health. Uh, now, obviously, I just wanted to read that because I think it's really important to understand that what is so tragic is that the, the people affected by the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, their ordeal did not simply end with surviving the blast. It, it continued on in how they were completely ostracized in post-war Japan and treated as other, you know, to, to have gone through such an, a nightmarish ordeal that is unimaginable, especially to, to us in the West, and then to be made other in your own country, is, it's, it's horrifying. And, and to treat those people so with such inhumanity is is you know it's it's very very sad and when i watched the h-man the reason that i chose this as the kind of the angle in which i wanted to look at the film was again as soon as the film makes the connection for you that they the h-men may have retained their psyche or their memories from when you know from from before they were affected by radiation 
then you can't help but look at them as victims. These are people who, or who were once people who have been now uh, irrevocably changed by their experience of the bomb and radiation. And now, <laughs> even after going through that ordeal, they're not able to return to, to, to normal life, to society, because they have been made so other. And, you know, again, obviously I want to stress, this isn't, talk, you know, this, this reading of the film is not Honda's meaning, you know, as far as I, as far as I could tell from what I researched, you know, Honda never spoke about the Hibakusha in regards to the H-Man. Certainly nobody else on the production did. Um, but I do think that certainly the, uh, the thematic territory, the film, you know, talks about uh leaves itself open to these kinds of readings why do you think it is that directors and staff within toho don't explicitly refer to links between their films and you know, the second world war and hiroshima and nagasaki bombings is that because it would be considered politically too motivated or is it kind of just a no-go zone or do you think it's because they prefer people to infer kind of more subtly? Well, I think that, uh, you know, certainly when you have a writer like Takeshi Kimura, aka Karu Mabuchi, uh, writing this film, who was um, a member of the Japanese Communist Party, at least initially before it was uh, made illegal uh, in 1925, um, you know, there is the propensity to, to read it as having uh, far more kind of somber weight to it but at the same time I, I also want to you know make clear that really the kind of the first and foremost uh priority of people like Shiro Honda you know and producer Tomoyuki Tanaka was to make an, an an entertaining picture and indeed they do that and I think you know again that these readings that I'm drawing from are more based in extra textual knowledge around what was happening in Japan around the time of the movie and in, in the decade prior, rather than go, rather than looking at it and going, this film is explicitly talking about this, which I don't think it is. I understand, and thank you for the clarification on that. The coupled essay that came with Mothra, because I bought the box set, I got the two films together. Uh, Mothra, nineteen sixty-one. Your title, I believe, is Utopia in Hell. Yes. And what is Utopia in Hell? What does that mean? Well, Utopia in Hell was uh, essentially, uh, according to uh, Steve Rifle and Ed Gojczewski, uh, speaking on the previous audio commentary for Mothra, um, they spoke about how uh, Ishiro Honda had wanted to produce a Utopia in Hell in the Infant Island setting, which I believe absolutely he does, uh, because you have the obviously the jagged exterior uh, of, of Infant Island, which looks dead and looks... Uh, pretty imposing but then within you have this lush green jungle uh, obviously uh, illustrated by those fabulous map paintings um, and I think the reason I chose that title is because in terms of what I was talking about with the movie uh, and the kind of the thematic parallels to uh, the United States Operation Crossroads Mothra as a film in terms of its unabashed positivity is a utopia in the hell that is our real life history. Uh, and so its positivity is something of a utopia in hell. That makes sense. And on the second viewing, it took me quite a while to realise that that jagged exterior 
was the same place because uh, when the, the helicopter is flying over Infinite Island, I thought, wow, that, that looks like it has been burnt to a crisp. It almost had kind of like a moon um, sort of landscape tone to it and the people are shouting over. Yeah. And then just a bit later on, you see that uh, tropical rainforest and it did throw me a little bit. I was thinking, is that the same place? And of course it is, mm. um, as you've just said there. What is Operation Crossroads? So Operation Crossroads um, was essentially, it was a nuclear test series carried out by the United States in the summer of 1946. Uh, Now Operation Crossroads uh, marked the first time that the United States had tested atomic weapons since uh, Trinity in 1945. Trinity being the very first test of a nuclear weapon uh, at uh, Alamogordo in Los Alamos. Uh, And now the, the Baker or the Operation Crossroads series of tests con- consisted of two detonations, uh, codenamed Abel and Baker, uh, and which were weapons similar in yield to the Fat Man bomb that had been dropped over Nagasaki 11 months prior. Um, now, essentially, uh, Crossroads, it kind of had an official meaning and it also had an unofficial meaning. So it allowed the US to demonstrate their new weapon to the world because whereas Trinity and the Hiroshima and Nagasaki explosions had been shrouded in wartime secrecy, Crossroads allowed the, you know, offered the chance for America to properly introduce the world to, you know, the atomic bomb because several reporters were invited to attend and document the tests and the events were heard on radios all over the world. Um, So that was kind of, you know, in terms of showing off the bomb on the world stage, that was... A, a kind of a, the the official uh, line, but in in private there was a lot of infighting between the uh, between the U.S. Navy and the Army because the development of the atomic bomb had stirred questions within the upper echelons of the U.S. government about the relevance of the Navy in an atomic world, and specifically, like I said, there was something of a rivalry rivalry sorry between the Army, uh, of which the Air Force was kind of connected to at that time and the navy after all in the event of an atomic attack the air force would be employed in the strategic delivery of weapons whereas the navy could neither withstand nor deliver atomic attacks Um, but interestingly however uh, the navy had much more involvement in the production of the atomic bomb than one might think uh, because navy facilities had produced the materials for the hiroshima and nagasaki bombs and navy officers armed the bombs in flight Uh, now the uh, the army air force initially felt anxious about the bombs themselves as well uh, because why have a large fleet of strategic bombers uh, when you can just have one plane to deliver the bomb and that will flatten a target in seconds Um, and the navy moved quickly to set uh, set events in motion for the tests to take place Uh, you know they were eager to understand the effects of the bomb on ships at sea uh, so Crossroads was as much a test of public relations uh, as it was a test of military power. You know, public public perception of the Navy was seen to be at stake. But in amongst this, you have arrogance ag- and ignorance. You have a lack of knowledge on radiation because reports of radiation-related illness and injury coming from Japan following Hiroshima and Nagasaki were largely dismissed as hoaxes or an attempt by the Japanese to elicit sympathy and frame themselves as victims. Uh, You know, the US looked at their own lack of radiation-related illnesses following the Trinity test, the the first atomic test, and felt confident in in uh, dismissing the horrific news coming out of Japan. Uh, Norman Ramsey 
one of the Los Alamos scientists was quoted as saying, uh, quote, any person with radiation damage would have been killed with a brick first, uh, referencing the immense destructive power of the bomb's blast. And even J. Robert Oppenheimer, uh, who would obviously go on to become you know, a staunch voice against nuclear proliferation of everybody is aware of his uh, now I am become death speech. Uh, he even agreed with Norman Ramsey's assessment. And at the same time, uh, very few members of the US government even knew uh, of the bomb, let alone its effects. You know, when President Truman came to power, only two government officials knew how many bombs were in the US stockpile, uh, being Manhattan Project Director General Leslie Groves and General of the Army Dwight D. Eisenhower. Truman did not even know how many atomic bombs were in the US stockpile when he signed off on Operation Crossroads. And so scientific ignorance went hand in hand with military infighting. And in turn, 167 Bikini Islanders were overlooked, their homes destroyed, and their, they were ecologically harmed in permanence. And they were displaced, weren't they, and not returned to, they were not repatriated for quite a long time, am I right? Yes, so they were initially moved uh, with the promise that it was a temporary relocation and that they would eventually be uh, allowed to return, but sadly that wasn't to be the case. Uh, the US carried out further tests uh, you know, throughout the 50s in Bikini, uh, and the, the Castle Bravo blast uh, that irradiated the, the Lucky Dragon number no. 5, uh, that stripped Bikini Atoll of vegetation. Uh, you know, it wasn't until 1958, uh, the year of the H-Man, uh, that the US ceased nuclear testing in, in the area. And uh, I, you know, I'll read a, a, another excerpt from, from my Mothra essay, which is to say, in the early 1970s, some of Bikini's original residents returned to their homes. In 1978, they were relocated again after US assessments found that their bodies contained large quantities of radioactive material. And finally, in 1998, the International Atomic Energy Agency published a report which concluded that, quote, permanent resettlement of Bikini Island under the present radiological conditions without remedial measures is not recommended in view of the radiation doses that could potentially be received by inhabitants, end quote. And so you, <laughs> Operation Crossroads is a, a, a a hist it's just a mess. It's, a, you know, it's, it's a, one of the first major nuclear disasters uh, in terms of the ecological uh, damage that was that was inflicted on the atoll, and I mean, you know, the 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 horror that, that the Bikini Islanders went mm. through, the per permanently displaced, and the suffering from the radiation, and by the sounds of it, they weren't compensated in any way, or even acknowledged for what they'd suffered. Yes, absolutely. They, you know, they really have been overlooked. Um, you know, and again, in tying this to Mothra, uh, I don't mean to suggest that Honda or Shinichi Sakazawa or Tomiyuki Tanaka or anybody on the production staff was making a film explicitly about Crossroads. It, uh, you know, the, they wouldn't have known the specifics of Crossroads any more than, you know, they were just aware that these tests were happening in the Pacific. But I think that when you consider the plight of the, the real life plight of the Bikini Island natives, and what happens to the Shobujin in the film in terms of being plucked out of their out of their home environment, which has already been ravaged by nuclear weapons. Yes. And we you know I am going to take, you know, Clark Nelson as, you know, a Relisican citizen, taking them and saying, I'm going to move you and it's going to be for my benefit, is mm. well remarkably clear, uh, remarkably similar to 
you know, the motives behind what the United States were doing. And I think also his character is unapologetic in the way that he exploits the island because not only does he pluck the the Shobajin, he stopped initially and he's very much got the stance of, well, I'll be coming back later. And when the natives um, do try and stop him, he guns down the indigenous population and it just kind of quite matter of fact. In that regard, he's a very easy villain to hate, isn't he? Absolutely. I mean, you know, he's played with such gusto by uh, Jerry Ito. Uh, it's absolutely wonderful to watch mm. him as a villain. Um, I mean, that's the wonderful thing about Mothra is that you can watch it kind of in the same way that Robocop is a movie that you can watch as, you know, it's as entertainment, but it also has a huge amount to say about what the military industrial complex uh does to people and how yes. people are commodified and similarly i think mothra is this fabulous fairy tale where you can look at clark nelson and kind of laugh along with him and go god what a great villain he is but then you can also enjoy it on a you know that deeper level of going this movie has a hell of a lot to say about uh about nuclear imperialism mm, and rightly so and one of the things that i did enjoy about your essay on reading it is that where the circumstances and events that you've talked about, there is nothing positive to draw from. They are just tragedies one after the other with no kind of, there's, there's no silver lining. Within Mothra, there's a tone of optimism. The fact that the Relisican, you know, government or population, however you want to call it, they actually team up internationally. And there's that transnational cooperation, which after kind of hearing your talk, about what's going on um, within those decades, it almost feels a little bit kind of false, that optimism, but then I think it's kind of needed. Because on watching the very end of Mothra, I feel kind of, yeah, the, the bad guys get it and everyone teams up and you know the baddie gets his comeuppance, but it's just very saddening that in real life, the circumstances that you draw on, the testing on Marshall Islands, no one got their comeuppance and no one kind of faced the justice. Yeah, it, you know, it's, it's very, very sad. And at least the film offers something of a, a, a positive fictionalized uh, resolution, which obviously the, the actual Bikini Islanders uh, never, uh, never received. Um, you know, and so the film ultimately is optimistic. Uh, and, and very positive, and, and I admire it greatly for that. Um, certainly, I think that its uh, level of radical op opt uh, optimism is uh, certainly what's, you know, I think is, is something to admire. Um, hmm. And so, I think that the fact that it does allow for a uh, uh, for that positive, positive fictionalized ending is something to hang on to. That perhaps you know something better uh, is possible. Yes, it strikes me as an alternative political uh, universe where there has kind of been a sense of justice. And I, in that regard, I felt quite comfortable playing Mothra for my six-year-old because it had such kind of a positive tone to it, which, which I liked. And it's visually beautiful. Yes, it's, it's absolutely stunning to look at because, you know, <laughs> the, the Mothra, as soon as she emerges from her, 
from her chrysalis. It's, it's just a sight to behold. And then, you know, Subaraya's effects work, especially when uh, Mothra ravages uh, yes. New Kirk City, is fantastic. When when she flies over uh, the the bridge uh, and and that collapses, God, what a, what a beautiful shot and beautiful mm. effect sequence. Um, and obviously, you have you know the great characters like the great uh, Frankie Sakai uh, playing Zanichiro. Um, you know, and he's a every scene he's in, he steals. You know, you can't take your eyes off of him. He's, Absolutely. he's just wonderful. And I think it's uh, so sad that he wasn't in more Toho films. When I first watched him in Mothra, I thought, oh, wow, he's, he's brilliant, but I don't recognize him. And I looked on IMDb and I can't believe it. The man was in over 100 films as an actor. He really prolific actor within Japan. Yeah, and, and he's clearly he also has a massive uh, range uh, as an actor because uh, the same year as Mothra, uh, he appeared in a movie called The Last War, uh, directed by Shuei Matsubayashi. And The Last War is one of, I think, the greatest films ever made, and yet it has seldom been seen outside of uh, Japan. Um, and it's a, as the title would suggest, it is a, about a nuclear war, and it's right up there with, uh, you know, uh, threads or the day after or fail safe mm. uh, and it's a film that i i have in absolute high regard and in that film uh, frankie sakai plays uh he plays a chauffeur uh, chauffeur i can never pronounce that properly mm-hmm. and he uh, he's a chauffeur for a newspaper company and in the escalating tensions between uh the federation and the alliance which are stand-ins for nato and the warsaw pact um we hear from the from the from the newspaper reporters and the journalists who he who he drives for they talk about the escalating tensions and as the film goes on he absolutely has complete faith that no we're we're too intelligent the scientists of the world won't let this happen and as the film goes on and and things are getting you know going from sour to downright really worrying and really grim and grave you see his optimism begin to crack and begin to crumble. And mm. Frankie Sakai playing that role, you know, especially when you watch him in something like Mothra and you kind of, you're going into the last war. Certainly I was going into the last war when I first saw it a couple of years ago, you know, you, you see him and you feel, you feel safe. You think, Oh, well, Frankie Sakai's here. I'm, <laughs> I, I, I'm going to be okay. And I was in tears by the end of that film because mm. it is such a moving piece. Uh, but again, if it, it's, it's an absolute crime that that film doesn't have, I don't think it's had any home video release outside of Japan, as far as I'm aware. Uh, so if, if, uh, if indeed we do get more tokusatsu releases uh, in the wake of the Criterion Godzilla set, the Arrow Gamera set, and the Eureka Mothra sets, yes. um, I, I, sure, I sure hope that The Last War eventually comes out over here. Well, I cross my fingers for that. It is time for our second break, folks. When we return, we'll be giving our own personal recommendations and looking at how these two films have aged since their creation. When we made our new McDonald's spicy chicken McNuggets, you were praise hands emoji. Then we ran out and you were streaming tears emoji. Now they're back, so you can be grinning face with sweat emoji. Order ahead on the McDonald's app. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. For a limited time at participating McDonald's. My name is Connor Baxter, and I am a freelance 3D artist. My specialty is sculpting various monsters and kaiju found in pop culture, which are then converted into model kits via 3D printing. This is something I enjoy doing very much, and if you're interested in my work and like a private commission, then check out my portfolio site at invaderdesign.co.uk, where you can find my work and contact information. Or check out my Twitter, 
at invader underscore design. Cheers. Hello everyone, uh, welcome back to uh, Kaiju Curry House. My name is Chris Stewardson. I'm the guest this week. I'm the uh, deputy editor for Our Culture Mag and I'm a writer and a filmmaker. I'm here with Alex talking about Mothra and the H-Man. Yes, we are indeed. I have a question from my friend Paul, who is one of the co-hosts as well. He says, which essay are you most proud of and why? Now, knowing now that you've been writing for some time on various platforms, I'd like to broaden that beyond these two essays. Are there any other essays that you're particularly proud of that you'd like to share? <laughs> within, um, the, within the kaiju genre. It's difficult because I, I try not to go back and reread things that I've written because I end up just seeing uh, problems with them, mm. whether, it's, whether it's things of like, oh gosh, I wish I'd worded that differently or, oh, I wish I'd you know, made this point instead, or, oh, I don't even agree with myself here anymore. Yes. Uh, so uh, so uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to, to say that, but I would say certainly between Mothra and the H-Man, I think I'm quite, I'm quite happy with the H-Man one because initially I was only actually going to uh, do an essay for the H-Man, uh, but when I pitched it to Eureka, you know, they said, well, we're also doing this release of Mothra. Would you like to contribute to that? And obviously I leapt at that opportunity. And mm. um, so, for me, my my way in on this set was through the H Man, and certainly having researched it uh, a bit more and researching uh, the kind of the, the things I was talking about with the Hibakusha, certainly that's made me have a great affinity for the movie and, and a renewed respect for it. So, yeah, I'll say my my essay for the H Man. Rightly so, it's a fantastic essay. Mothra is nearly sixty years old now. What relevance do you think it carries for the modern day within Tokusatsu? Well, uh, for starters, you know, it's a spectacle. It's, you know, it is quite unlike any other film ever made. Um, you know, I, I have no qualms saying that I think it's one of the greatest movies ever made, uh, let alone just in, in, you know, the takusatsu uh, subgenre. Um, but I think what I like about it, and certainly what I think we're seeing in, say, Ultraman Z, which is obviously the most recent Ultraman program, is it's it's absolute unabashed positivity. Um, what I like about Mothra is that it posits a world in which those who exploit others, those who exert capitalist greed, they get their comeuppance and they have justice enacted against them. And the fact that that is uh, <laughs> through the medium of a magnificent giant moth is wonderful. And I would like to see you know, more films, you know, not just... Not just um, in Tokusatsu, but general science fiction, I'd like to see that level of positivity. And this isn't to say that that's the only kind of uh, sci-fi I enjoy, far from it, uh, but it's certainly something I appreciate seeing. Thank you for elaborating on that. I've got a question from one of our members, Julia. She says, are there any essays that you'd like to do in the future, specifically for a film? Are there any films that you think, I would like to do an essay on that? Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, when it comes to films like, you know, in, in this genre, uh, in mm. this subgenre, I'd love to do something on Frankenstein versus Baragon because I think, I think it's a wonderful movie. I genuinely think it's fantastic. Uh, but I think, you know, even more than the, than the H-Man, the Hibakusha uh, reading can absolutely be applied to Frankenstein versus Baragon. Quite unfortunately, there were many, many children uh, who 
were left behind after the bombings, having lost their parents and having lost their families. And in the movie, you have the monster, the, the Frankenstein creature. Obviously, I know he's called Frankenstein in the movie. He fits that history, I think, quite well. And the fact that the film frames him with sympathy is, is really wonderful. Uh, I think the Toho Frankenstein is, is certainly one of my favourite creations from, from their pantheon. But outside of, outside of Tokusatsu, um, <laughs> I know Shout Factory or Scream Factory have a Blu-ray of Earth vs. the Spider. Now, if any UK company... <laughs> Uh, is able to pick that up for release. I am dying to uh, to write an essay for that movie. And by the sounds of it, from what you're saying, it would be great if you could do an essay on the Last War. Oh, absolutely! I, you know, it would uh, it'd be difficult only because I'd have to watch the movie again, and I would definitely be in tears by its end. You've reminded me of when I watched Grave of the Fireflies. That's one of those films that I think <laughs> placing yeah. the focus on people rather than on soldiers you know, civilians specifically, that really was hard hitting. I knew going into Grave of the Fireflies that it was going to be gut wrenching, but I don't think I appreciated how much so. And just the, you know, I was punch drunk by the end of it, just kind of how cruel the circumstances are that play yeah. out. Yeah, um, Grave of the Fireflies is, is, a, is a masterpiece. It, it is indeed. And it's, it's actually my favourite war film. Uh, and I think it, should be called a war film it's uh, but not in the sense that people think of war films it's, it's not an action and despite it being entertaining i say cautiously it approaches entertainment in a very in, from a very different angle yeah absolutely mothra as one of toho's big five has obviously been in many films and on this podcast, we often talk about the idea that maybe Toho should diversify a bit and use more of the other kaiju within its roster. Now, what do you think of the relevance of Mothra as a kaiju today? Do you think that it's kind of got there's more potential there? Do you think that um, this film deserves a remake? I'm just giving you ideas. Well, I'm fairly averse to... Uh... <laughs> I'm fairly averse to to remakes. Um, not that they can't be good. I think there's some fabulous remakes out there, like you know Cronenberg's version of The Fly. The 1988 version of The Blob is is fantastic. Um, <laughs> but I I think Mothra certainly has salience today, insofar as you know you can view her as a symbol of of justice, as as a wrong being put right in the most magnificent way possible. And I think that. If we look at the the last six months alone, not that it's only happened in the last six months, obviously it's been happening for a while, but if we look at just the last, last six months alone, there have been some quite uh, nightmarish evils going on in the world. And, you know, I don't mean to trivialise them by saying that, oh, Mothra should come back and a film should be made and that will make it all okay. But um, certainly as a symbol, you know, I hope hmm. that, I hope that the kind of the, I hope that the kind of narrative that Mothra represents, where uh, wrongs are are righted and, and justice prevails, good God, I I hope that that symbol can can uh, play out in reality. For sure. Right, it is time for us to wrap up. I was hoping that we could make our own personal recommendations. At this, uh, at the end of our episodes, we normally talk about what we would like people to go away and read, go away and watch. So I was thinking you could start us off, Chris. Uh, if nothing else, what would you encourage our listeners to go and do now? 
Uh, well, lots of different uh, things to, to, to read and watch. If you can track down uh, Shuri Matsubayashi's uh, The Last War, please give that a watch. That's a fabulous film. Um, I think Susan Southard's text, Nagasaki, Life After Nuclear War, is really enlightening. Uh, obviously, it is quite a heavy read, so obviously, you know, you know what you're getting into, um, but it is absolutely, I think, really important as well. Um, I would also recommend reading um, Nick Kapoor's book, Japan at the Crossroads, Conflict and Compromise After Anpo. Uh, that provides a really interesting and fascinating look at Japan's post-war history uh, in regards to um, America's involvement in the occupation and how that has shaped Japan's politics up until the present day. So yeah, absolutely. Those, 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 uh, that, the last war and those, those two books I'd absolutely recommend. Well, brilliant. Thank you very much for those recommendations. If nothing else, I would like to give a shout out to uh, Eureka Video for these excellent releases. I encourage you to go to the website and get a copy of The H-Man, which of course comes with um, Battle in Outer Space, which we haven't even talked about, have we? <laughs> no, not at all. Um, uh, I do I do enjoy Battle in Outer Space. I popped it in. It was, in fact, when I got the set, it was the first film I watched off of it. And uh, the new transfer that they've got is um, is superb. Yeah, well, I recommend that people go online and get a copy of the H-Man Battle in Outer Space, along with Mothra, so you can make use of the fantastic deal they've got going for those. And I would encourage our listeners to keep an eye out uh, for new upcoming episodes because we've got another interview with Arrow Video coming up to celebrate their release of uh, Tremors, the first Tremors. And we'll have, uh, of course, Matt Frank joining us for that and James Flower from Arrow Video. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Chris? Um, well, I'd just like to say thank you ever so much for, for having me on. It's been great to, uh, to, to be with you guys here today. Um, and I'm um, just, you know, blown away by by all the support and the the love that's been shown to these uh eureka sets mm, most definitely and i do hope that you're able to come back on there uh, sometime be it to discuss any essays that you've done or to review frankenstein versus baragon that could be an option absolutely i'd love to well thank you very much everyone i uh, bid you goodbye and keep it kaiju take care Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com. Here's three great reasons to get the new Samsung Galaxy S21 5G at T-Mobile. One, it's free for both current and new customers when you trade in an eligible device. Two, T-Mobile's the leader in 5G coverage. So three, you can unleash 5G speeds in more places with your new phone. Get the new Galaxy S21 free at T-Mobile, the leader in 5G coverage. Phone via 24 monthly bill credits plus tax. If you cancel credit, stop and balance on required finance agreement may be due. Contact us. Qualifying credit and consumer plan required. See details at T-Mobile.com.